Imagine you're attempting to make your favorite cocktail. The blender, a crucial tool, promises to unify disparate ingredients into a harmonious blend of flavors. However, misusing this powerful device, adding too much of one ingredient, or blending at the wrong speed can lead to disaster, spoiling the cocktail and wasting precious resources. This is exactly what can happen when AI is not strategically implemented within your business. Sure, AI has the potential to solve intricate problems, but if not handled correctly, it can create even more complications. In the realm of B2B SaaS, AI is like a high-tech blender with the potential to revolutionize your services. AI can enable you to process customer needs, streamline your operation, and uncover hidden flavors you previously didn't think possible. But the allure of AI, like the mesmerizing whirl of a blender, can be deceptive. Leading with the fascination of something being labeled as AI rather than concrete outcomes can lead to mismatched expectations and ineffective implementation, creating more problems than it solves. But don't worry, that's where our expert mixologist Rudina Ciceri steps in. Rudina, the founder and managing partner of Glasswing Ventures, has mastered the art of blending AI into businesses. She stresses leading with outcomes, not with the shiny prospect of AI for the sake of AI. It's about using AI as a tool to achieve your goals, not as a novelty. With Rudina's guidance, you can avoid the pitfalls of misuse and learn how to leverage AI to solve real-world problems in your business, creating the perfect blend of innovation, efficiency, and growth. In today's episode, Rudina will unpack the complexities of AI implementation, discussing how to lead with outcomes and avoid the common traps that can turn your AI dream into a nightmare. So join us as we navigate the exciting yet challenging world of AI and B2B SaaS, learning from Rudina's expertise how to create the perfect AI blend for your business. Prepare to transform your approach to AI and get ready for a taste of success. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. I'm Ben Hillman, and on today's episode, Rudina Ciceri speaks with Andrew Davies about strategically implementing AI within your business. They talk about venture capital, artificial intelligence and machine learning, business strategy, data privacy and security, as well as digital transformation and tech industry trends. After you finish this episode, check out the show notes for a field guide from today's episode. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of the podcast, tell us what resonated most about our guest advice. Rudina, as we just jump in here, why don't you give me a bit of a background um, to yourself and also your entrance into the investing world and what you've been doing since you uh, founded Glasswing? Thanks, Indra, and good to see you. So my background, I have been in the technology slash venture capital investing world for nearly two decades now, coming up on my 20th year. I have been investing in early stage companies as the first investor in for the bulk of that period. But my background prior to venture capital was at Microsoft. And prior to that, in the technology group at Credit Suisse in the early 2000s, late 99s and 2000s, where I caught my tech bug, as I often say. So left the investment banking hours and fell in love with the power of transformation and innovation and really wanted to get on the operational side. Microsoft gave me that ability and then really wanted to help founders um, build companies. So that's me enough. Nutshell. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about your investment thesis at Glasswing, the type of companies you invested in, why? Glasswing Ventures is an early stage first capital in focused firm. And 
We're investing in companies that are leveraging AI and frontier technologies for the enterprise and security markets. Very much focused on end market adoption where AI or some other frontier tech facet can disrupt an existing market for the better or create entirely new markets and transformations. In that vein, we have a really sort of, in my view, differentiated approach because from day one, we are thinking not simply about how you build a SaaS company, which of course you you have to worry about the business model and the go-to-market, and perhaps we can touch on that a bit later, but also how do you build an AI native company, which is not exactly the same as your run-of-the-mill software? What techniques are better for what approaches? What problems are you truly solving? Are you optimizing your value prop and your technology for those problems and facets that I suspect, Andrew, you are abundantly familiar with given your background? As we do that, keep in mind, you know, when we're investing, it's typically one, two or three founders and a few developers. The product market fit risk is fully blown. It hasn't been addressed. So the way Glasswing is set up, in addition to being thesis driven and focused on AI is that at the partner level, we have a partner for every leadership and executive function of a technology company. So instead of saying our investment partners, we actually think of it as our building partners. We have one of our partners is the former CTO of Nuance. One of our partners is the former CRO of a number of companies including Chorus AI and Reprise. One of our partners is the former CMO of LogMeIn and Rapid7. So we have that operator group, if you will, at the table making investment decisions all together. Why? Because once we go into an investment, we are not simply, okay, here's the capital, I will come and pontificate every board meeting. It's about viewing ourselves as extensions to the team and really helping them build. Okay, we're going to get the design partners or customers, let's go. And so we're incredibly involved. And some companies are making decisions around what techniques to use. Others are making decisions around early positioning, pricing. We want to be able to help them from day one with the ultimate goal of shortening the time and the effort to product market fit. I'll pause at that. Does it give you a sense? Why don't we just quickly define for everyone who's listening then, in your words and in your focus as a fund, what is AI and what are frontier technologies? What would be some examples of things that fit within that and some things that would clearly fit outside of it? In the broadest of senses, I think AI is, you know, the newly emerging intelligence, right? And not necessarily mirroring human intelligence. It's a different type of intelligence, but the intelligence that eventually will cut across all facets of technology-enabled companies, which pretty much will be, I think, any company out there. And I often say that 5, 10, 15 years from now, we can jointly laugh at the notion of having an AI-focused fund because it will be so pervasive, much like we wouldn't have an internet-focused fund today. But for the next set of, you know, iterations around AI adoption and innovation, it's a different type of technology because, you know, you're applying ML and other techniques. Therefore, a lot of domain expertise is needed. So AI is when you're bringing intelligence where, in our view, the what. The how in the current day and age has two facets to it in our view some form of learning whether it's machine you know machine learning broadly defined but whether it, I don't know anything around generative AI is so hot right now but generative AI whether it is deep neural nets whatever techniques one might be using and data so that's the how and the buzz is on the what the how is the more complicated piece because not all techniques are created equal and are equally valuable um, to various value propositions in solving problems so that's how we define AI. 
is very much around narrow AI, right? You know, in our current investments, by definition, we're not looking for AGI or anything of that nature just yet, although the most recent advances have made that much more of a possible reality. Frontier Tech is really focused on other very, very cutting-edge technologies that can be applied in the three to five-year time window. So, for example, we have a portfolio company called Chaos Search that is really bringing down the cost and complexity of querying data in cold storage. So think about observability needs for security data lakes. Why would an AI fund focus on that? Well, data is expensive, is hard to manage, and junk in, junk out, high-quality data in, strong outcomes. So from that perspective, that company sits on our frontier tech in that they're leveraging on a whole new approach to separate storage from compute. And more fundamentally, they're really leveraging object storage technology and creating a new type of database. Why is it not deep tech? I I feel like I'm asking the questions for you, but just to draw that distinction, because deep tech has a five to 10 to 15 year adoption cycles, whereas the frontier tech that gets leverage and innovation that we back has a three to five year cycle for adoption. So it's a differentiation on how quickly can we solve a problem and how fundamental is the technology and transformative that we're using. Did I draw that distinction, Andrew? Yeah, that's super helpful and and totally understand given the stage of uh, investments you're making and probably the ticket size of investments you're making, how that timeline is really, really important to your investment thesis. My first software business that I co-founded was a it was using natural language processing and a bit of ML to do B2B personalization. And this was 10 years ago or so. I know the the heartache of trying to work through whether we sit on the shoulders of giants or build a bunch of stuff ourselves. And, and then also trying to explain what can be some quite complicated propositions around automation. And sometimes, in, especially in the early days, unbelievable propositions around automation, um, which in an enterprise often aren't received particularly well until you, well, until you package them. Over the last few years, and particularly the last, you know, in 2022 and early 2023, we've seen the buzz around AGI and the buzz around, you know, open AI and the response from Google has gained news share everywhere. Could you just talk us through what you think has happened for that to gain such public attention in such a quick order, even though this is, you know, the research pathways have been building for the last 20 years or so? I, w- I would love to build on, on something you said around we sit on the um, shoulders of giants and then we iterate in a and disrupt from there. For context, OpenAI, at least in its non-for-profit side, has been around for many, many, many years. I think what makes it particularly relevant to sort of give us the sense that it happened overnight, a decade that feels like an overnight phenomenon, it's actually a technology back, you know, breakthrough in that fundamentally two things happens. The emergence of embeddings, continuous vector representations of text that are now must-haves and in any natural language processing type offering. And secondly, the transformer capabilities. The occurrence of both those phenomena on the technical side led to OpenAI's ChatGPT and then the, no, I think we're version 3, we're waiting for version 3.5 or whatever the case might be. But for those evolutions and revolutions to occur, and it's a confluence of those two phenomena, those two breakthroughs occurring at the same time, and the adoption that really overnight, it made it feel like as though overnight, you know, the landscape changed. So that's one piece. The other piece is that this notion of separating hype from reality. And what I mean by that is over the last, since 2010, 2012, 
we've been seeing different facets of AI, actually the interaction in the enterprise. I shared with you that we are the thesis-driven investors. My first AI-focused companies were right around the 2010 um, timeframe. We developed a thesis and we could no longer talk about advanced data or advanced data analytics. Something else had happened and that something else was really deep neural nets. So 2006, you had deep neural nets, the giants of shoulders, right? Or the, sho the shoulders of giants, rather. Let me start in order. So in 2006, we had the, the advent around um, deep neural nets. So your notion of sitting on the shoulders of giants, then we have continued to iterate new techniques that have come about. And here we are again, an another leap. On the interactions, on the, on the broader awareness, what ChatGPT has done is it allows any average person to go and type something and get an outcome. And the results, at least at the consumer level, feel quite impressive. Now, between that and the adoption for the end enterprise, there is an ocean in between. And in fact, if we come back to the everyday reality of founders building AI-first companies, in many, many, many instances, Andrew, you don't need generative AI. There are other techniques that are a lot more useful and a lot lead to much better and concrete outcomes and value creation without needing the sophistication of, or, or the buzzword related to generative AI, although I'm a fan. One of the most one of the triumphs has been the interface. And I know some people have described yeah, ChatGPT as direct-to-consumer AI, this idea of bringing it right to every single person. And certainly, you know, the, the eyebrows that have been raised in my family when I've opened up that interface and tried to give it instructions. My, my dad's a chartered accountant for small businesses and showing him prompts that would immediately replace a huge amount of his day work certainly were very eye-opening to him. But I think the really interesting counterpoint there is of confidence wrongness. And that's probably a flaw that is being exposed as people are starting to dig into playing with ChatGPT. And also we saw in the launch of Bard from Google in that opening advert, a very confident wrongness. Is that part of that gap you see between what we've got now and what is needed for enterprise adoption? And you know, what, what angle are you taking on helping founders think through overcoming that confident wrongness that we're seeing in ChatGPT? A myriad of questions there. Let me, let me decouple them. First of all, I will uh, compare your dad to my nine-year-old old. I have a nine-year-old daughter who, you know, got a bit of exposure and said, but of course, this is almost like the table stakes is my choice of vocabulary, but this is expected. It will be fascinating to see the generational shifts between what we are used to or our parents to the AI native generation and what they will perceive, not just the use of something like ChatGPT, but the human in the loop world, the newly defined relationship with that. So I'll leave that out there. It's, it's it's an interesting notion to ponder. How do I guide my founders on, on the question of, hey, we're, see, we're seeing that ChatGPT and any other solution for that matter that's AI powered is prone to error. I ask back the question, why humans are perfect and or why is technology in any prior to AI perfect? So there is, because it's almost mirroring in certain ways, human-like interactions, we're trying to humanize what's ultimately technology. 
energy and have expectations that are or are not realistic. Again, I'll leave that there. When it comes to the enterprise, it's less about, oh, this will not be adopted because we got this error. It's much more about predictability overall. Before someone uses, you know, builds on that foundational model, whether it's an app or some sort of solution for solving a problem, let's say customer success for the enterprise, what data is it being trained on? Are you, you're in Europe, you have to deal with GDPR and all those joys. Now, are you in violation of regulations? Is it reliable? Is it going to understand, you know, if it's being leveraged for different sets of domain expertise, it's broad. Is it deep enough? Or what does the app need to do? Clients matters. If it's regulated industries, there, we need to take what's a raw technology and turn it into a product with all the compliance and expectation requirements for an enterprise-grade product that's expected. And I can go into some examples as well, but am I, does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. And yeah, one you bring it to life with a few examples. So I'm thinking of particularly one company that we have called Verison in the really inventory optimization space. They're using a myriad of actual combinations of ML techniques. But what they are doing is fundamentally bringing visibility into the MRO, which is really the, the replacement parts or the machine parts to produce goods. They are creating on average 30 to 40 million hard dollar savings for any given large enterprise because they're able to identify poor ordering, reordering, overstocking, last minute ordering and unnecessary premiums that are getting paid. In that entire statement, while I said that they're combining different ML techniques and didn't get into the, you know, nitty-gritties of how we can, we can have a feast in that regard. But I started with what the value prop is and immediately what problem is solving and the magnitude of the problem it's solving. And I shared that because there is a real danger for founders that, you know, are leveraging AI or, or building AI native companies to get the sense that there is a there there because they're getting a huge response from possible customers on account of positioning themselves as, as AI companies or generative AI as a flavor of the day. And it goes both for their prospective customers and their venture, uh, venture capitalists that they're pitching. And I warn my own founders to be careful of what I call the, the fake interest syndrome, which is every enterprise in some fashion or another has AI or data as an asset or digital transformation as a one, two or third priority, a strategic priority from the boardroom and the CEO down. So guess what? The likes of you and me will get on the phone if we're part of those enterprises and we we will want to learn if someone says, I have an, a generative AI solution that will solve your problems. It's much less about the actual solution and about the possibility of leveraging it. It's much more of an, an educational journey. So I encourage founders to actually start thinking and leading with what problem they're solving, how they're solving, and by all means, ride the generative AI wave, lead with it, and then make sure they know that you are at the frontier of AI. It's not just the fairy dust you can sprinkle over your investment pitch. There's got to be some value proposition that's making sense to the enterprise buyer. I pray to God, yes. <laughs> Especially if you do AI, you know, back AI companies for a living, that fairy dust, oh, disappears very, very quickly. Five minutes in, we're talking about depth of techniques and data sources and structured, unstructured, etc. But we're talking more about go to market and how do we build a big big company. I almost th see that there's a continuum here and the best companies kind of solve that false dichotomy and, and have both. On one end, you've got the value proposition of a real solving a pragmatic 
you know, problem. And on the other side, we've got the fact that that tech is yours and the data set is yours and it's proprietary. We're seeing a huge amount of companies spin up based on a small interface or layer or application on top of OpenAI or other sets of APIs. Clearly, you'd want both of those to be true in most of the companies you'd invest. But which which one do you look for first and which you have more bias towards? A very clear and pragmatic value prop or something proprietary and owned by the business? Gosh, don't make the world so binary. Those are hard choices. And then as a, as a good OVC that I am, I will give you an answer that doesn't align on that paradigm, but I will go for execution every time. Let me start with that. So the idea around the value prop can be big or the technology can be incredibly differentiated, at least in its vision of what's being built. The number one question is on either one of those, can you execute and build? I find that technology or, you know, leveraged and products built, because that's a big distinction. Wonderful that you have great tech. What's the product? Technology is leveraged and products that are, are built to solve a real world problem have a much bigger chance of commercializable success than amazing technologies in search of a use case. From that perspective, especially if you don't want to be in research for 20, 30 years, I think having a value prop or at least the thesis around the value prop, whether you're building a platform or a tool, is fundamentally important. If you're able to have proprietary tech, proprietary data and create this value prop, kudos to you. If you're using, you know, foundational models that, you know, the incumbents have built and then you build your own layer of technology and your own layer of, you know, perhaps you know, proprietary offering on top of it, you know, just because you're leveraging a foundational model doesn't mean that you can have no proprietary tech in on top of it and you're solving a real problem and you're training your algorithms for that particular problem. So we'll talk about the depth of data training in a differentiated manner and then executing. You have every chance of success. You, we, we, we're tracking about 28 billion of ARR through our metrics products. We see a huge point of visibility into the SaaS Wait, is space. That, is that a pitch? Is that a pitch right there? What is the product? We can talk for hours about that, but most of the people listening to this will know. We have a free metrics product that you can plug in your, your Stripe dashboard or similar to. And so we're seeing all of financial data from about 25,000, 30,000 different software businesses. One of the things we've seen spike in our dashboards, both in, the, in that free metrics product and in our core payments platform where we see the real revenue and the churn and all, all those rates is the massive growth of tools built on some of the uh, some of the technologies we've just been discussing, particularly on the sets of APIs from OpenAI, etc. One thing that is remarkable to me as someone who's in a go-to-market role, and we've both both used the phrase "standing on the shoulders of giants," is how easily strong value propositions can be built on top of what is there and therefore how difficult the go-to-market becomes. Because you suddenly, if we take Jasper as an example of a company that's done extremely well, there are, I don't know, 500 competitors for approximately what they're doing instantly that have spun up very quickly afterwards. Talk to me a little bit about the go-to-market, the distribution that you look for and any good examples of how companies have gone to market with a complicated or AI-based value proposition in a way that's won the attention of the end user. A couple of thoughts in that regard. One, um, it begs the question, you know, you've referenced Jasper a couple of times. Is there truly a first mover advantage? And if it is, and that first mover advantage may not be on the, you know, foundation model itself because, you know, they're using open AI's capabilities, or if it's not that the core product itself is highly differentiated per se, is it in execution of go-to-market? So if you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of customers, 
customers. And I wake up one morning and I say, ah, I love what Andrew is doing. I think I'm going to go after what he's doing. The question is for you, how do you protect your stake, continue to innovate and back to sort of our paradigm discussion and shift the paradigm so it doesn't become a race to the bottom because there are 50 other players. So now you're competing on price. And that may mean that incremental products, that may mean if it is a platform, additional new use cases. So you've got to figure out, this is truly sort of an exercise in strategy. What are the barriers to entry that I have and how can I make the switching costs very, very high for my customers by, you know, uh, delighting and continuing to expand the depth of my offering and the breadth of my offering. So that's one. But two, you use the term for these, you know, companies that are leading with AI. Please don't lead with AI, lead with, you know, outcomes. I go back to that earlier comment of these are the outcomes I deliver and I deliver them because I leverage AI. And it may sound like a subtle, but it's a distinct difference. So, you know, as, as I reflect on our own portfolio, I'll keep, I'll pick on a company that's in the security space called Black Kite. They essentially, what they are doing is for the, you know, your supply chain ecosystem. So that could include your vendors, your partners, all the way to your customers, to be honest. If you're an enterprise, they are leveraging AI to give you real-time assessments of your vulnerabilities and exposures. So as the CISO, the chief information and security officer of that enterprise, you can both make some decisions in assessing risk and your appetite. If it's a very important customer and they're exposing you to XYZ risk, do you want to mitigate? Do you want them to mitigate? Is there a middle ground? And it can be leveraged all the way for risk and governance management at the public board of directors type level. The underpinnings, all sorts of AI techniques and data and training, but the value prop that they create is incredibly differentiated. Now you may say, okay, but why can't Andrew and Rudina wake up and do the same thing? Well, funny enough, these guys actually had incumbents in the markets that still exist. The difference, though, is it comes from the amazing tech and what they have done around AI, around this real-time and continuous sort of ability to accurately predict the vulnerabilities, deliver better outcomes. So that's where your tech and, you know, and the continuous learning that occurs through ML techniques gives you an edge. Customer support, thought leadership, your domain, right? And you know, amazing sort of uh, end-to-end experience for the customer. So it's an end and it's not a silver bullet that addresses all. You leverage tech to either gain advantage or disrupt, and then you leverage execution on the go-to-market and continuous innovation thinking to make it difficult for the newcomers who don't have your customers, who don't have your, possibly your capital and the ability to command pricing, make it difficult for them to respond. Do you have portfolio companies that are taking that product-led route to market? I I think one thing that we're seeing again in our data is how particularly generative AI brings a value proposition so close to the customer, the freemium and the margin option there becomes really interesting and usage-based pricing and allows people to show the value proposition before any kind of sales cycle. So is that a mode you're seeing within the businesses you're funding? So it's interesting. Um, I don't have a good answer for you there, and I'll tell you why. Yes, I do. Um, but we have two opposing forces happening in the current market environment. One is the big push for product-led. I mean, we are investors in Reprise, which is automating the demo function of software. I'm, I'm a big, 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 big fan and believer in that company as the market leader and market maker and category maker. Of, of course we do. By the same token, what I am seeing in the current environment, and it's really the early signs, is that that as enterprises are pulling back, you have layoffs, you know, you hear about the layoffs in the tech space, but you have layoffs and cost cutting across, you know, sectors and the scrutiny 
revenue around costs comes to bear, two things become true. Customers require more handholding and, uh, you know, a clear and more sort of support in seeing the value proposition. And the cycles are slower. So if you have this, you know, something, what goes along with product-led growth is typically shorter sales cycles. And honestly, uh, several, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50K, not hundreds of thousands in, in ACV. Well, wait a minute, when cycles get longer, when more is needed and more touch points, is it really, does, uh, you know, product-led growth hold? I don't have a good answer. But these are two going hand in hand and equally strong forces. Again, you made the point generative AI could really push the um, product-led growth movement farther and accelerate. And yet it's having an environment that's a recessionary in nature. Which one will win? We're watching it very, very carefully because fundamentally, if it starts that for, I'm making it up, but for a 30K ACV, it's now taking you five, six months. Is that the right pricing? Is that the right go-to-market? What do you need to think about? Other, you won't have a profitable customer. You won't have a business you know, mid to long term. So let's keep an eye on that. And I'm sorry, I can't give you a definitive answer, but this is the beauty of what we do. Let's go on to a couple of different tacks before we come back and finish here on, on AGI and some other future gazing that I'm sure you'll be willing to do. One of the, you, you've spoken about a few challenges in crossing that chasm from smart technology to something that's enterprise ready. You know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, you mentioned compliance as one of those. What are the challenges that, that I've seen on a few insure tech based startups around pricing of risk was genuine DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion challenges when trained on open data sets that haven't had full context. And so you've got decisions being made abstracted from real person's lives that can actually, if it's not, if you're not put guard, if you're not putting guardrails in place, can have devastating consequences because of biases that are in the data sets. Is that something you've seen? Is that something you've got companies that are actively addressing? It feels like as we give more and more power, decision power to to different forms of AI, that's a, a, a known consequence. I think for a long while still, we will be in a human in the loop mode precisely for that reason. So we are making decisions informed by our AI agent counterpart, not not to humanize technology, but um, for sure, but the decisions still lie with us. That's very important. Secondly, to your very valid point, single black mom automatically denied for an in, by an insurance provider or you know, we can have countless of other examples, but that's a real challenge. Why? Noise in the system and biases in the system. So, Andrew, I think it was around 2020, I wrote an article with a provocative title called This AI Mail. And I talked about the challenges that we have, biases and noise, and those are two different things. But with the algorithms, if it's only men coding, if it's only women coding, what issues come with those? But even more dangerously on the data side, even things like why is Siri's voice a woman? Why was Watson a male's voice? Is you know, is it because women have a secondary assistant-like role? We can challenge it and say that's not so feminist. But why is it? Somebody did some testing, I assure you, to find which one appealed. So it's more a reflection of what the market will support and adopt rather than someone started with the notion of oh, I, we will make Siri a woman because this is what I believe about women. 
experiment. Just think about that piece. On the data sets, if we've had biases in our decision-making, insurance tech, compliance, whatever, recruiting. I mean, Amazon had a huge issue because the, for the first passes in resume evaluations, they used prior data sets. Well, what kind of developers do you think they recruited? There was a lot of homogeneity, not just in gender, but in backgrounds of these folks. Building compliance and building capabilities to address those biases and building what you know is commonly known as ethical AI is something that we care about. In fact, not only do we have it part of our investment evaluation process, but we have incubated a business that speaks directly to this notion called Flux.ai. It's still in stealth mode, but I will be sure to let you know when it comes out of stealth mode. But it's exactly speaking to the need not simply to address this problem, but also automate them because the way that they are will be addressed or are being addressed somewhat haphazardly now is, you know, human based. And there's a lot of opportunity to leverage AI to drive better outcomes around against biases and noise in the system. We've got, you know, thousands of, of SaaS founders listening to this and many of them won't have AI as part of their core proposition, but will be quickly Googling, searching, have been probably testing out ChatGPT for the last two months daily. What advice do you have for businesses that are looking to reinvent what they're doing with some of the available you know, APIs and technologies now, or are looking to add ancillary services or products? What's your advice for a founder looking in on what's emerging? First, remember that the AI wave is much bigger than generative AI. And for goodness sake, don't latch on to that. I think retrofitting AI is not an easy exercise. I like this notion of think about how can you adopt it for products going forward. Secondly, start with, I think I'm becoming a broken record, but what problem are you solving and what technique is best? It might be generative AI, don't get me wrong, but it may be that, uh, you know, a Bayesian neural net is the best outcome or, you know, RNNs or some other techniques. I mean, there are supervised and supervised. Don't just rush in for the sake of checking the box because you have to pitch a VC or have to pitch a prospective customer and you have to check the box that you have AI. That has real consequences and or you will get snuffed out somewhere in that process that you don't have it. Instead, think about what am I problem for, you know, if I'm doing drug discovery, certain techniques are way better than other techniques or, and you know, some basic techniques may lead to very, very strong outcomes or not. So start thinking by what what sort of, if it's a drug, am I using a CNN? It's probably best. It's probably better than generative AI will ever be. I don't know. So you figure out what techniques are best and start with the fundamentals and then put the lipstick, so to speak, around the pitch and how you're leveraging AI. You mentioned your, your daughter earlier. I've got an 11-year-old daughter and an 8-year-old son. Based on what you're seeing in the market, the automation, and, and there is obviously a, a consequence there on jobs and careers and what people will have valued careers is doing in the future. What What's your advice to my kids age 11 and 8 about the kind of careers they should be looking out for and particularly the kind of things that they shouldn't because there's going to be automation, you know, eating those jobs over the next 10 years or so. It will be interesting. I mean, first, our children, provided that they have, they're fortunate enough to have the ability to pursue, they need to pursue what they love. That's just 
you know, a human view rather than a domain expert's view. But I think chances of succeeding in something that you love and, and have a talent for, ideally, are, are much higher. I don't think we should box our children based on what's coming down the pike or our perspective, you know, perspective of that. Also, I fundamentally believe that AI will create more jobs ultimately than it will automate. And there is plenty of research that, that supports that. Where we will see a negative disruption, I usually use the term disruption for the positive, but I think where we will see a negative disruption and honestly societal consequences is around this notion of will the doctor of today remain relevant in the same position 30 years from now? Why do you and I, do you and I want a very experienced doctor? In, in the U.S., we have, you know, residents. I don't want to see a resident. I want to see the head of the department. Why? This notion of experience and having seen it all. What happens? We'll still value experience, but what happens if seeing it all is now done by his co-pilot or her co-pilot where the model has seen it all and can give you the outliers and can give you what becomes relevant. And more importantly, is it more relevant that the doctor, him or herself, see it all or that they know how to interpret the data and, you know, with their AI co-pilot? So I think the concern that I have is more how the definition of what constitutes an attorney, you know, that do they need to read all the law or their legal co-pilot do so? A, a medical doctor, you can go, you know, field by field, how their role will get partially automated, but really change definitionally in how it operates. And we've seen this happen right in generally lower skill industries when the role shifted, either got automated or shifted to cheaper labor. We've never really seen this for highly trained, high income earning categories of labor. And that's where I think there will be societal consequences. What I don't know is, is it happen, does it feel like it happens overnight and we have upheaval? Does it happen gradually so then, you know, new generations catch on kind of like you're seeing computer science majors now learning lots about AI as opposed to it being two separate, you know, fields entirely, data science versus computer science. So we will see, but that's an area to keep an eye on. But tell the kids to be happy and enjoy being outside, not in front of their devices. My eight-year-old son will be very pleased to know that his dream of being a professional soccer player is not going to be automated away by uh, by some bot. I'm, I'm sure he'll he'll be delighted to know that this evening. And, and I do think. What position does he play? Hold on, hold on. <laughs> he has two dreams. He says he's either going to be the world's best goalkeeper or the world's best striker. There are the only two career options to him. So I'm glad he's aiming high. So I have to tell you, I we actually at Glasswing did an interview with Brianna Scurry about six months ago, who was the goalie for the women's U.S. soccer team. It's a thankless, it's a thankless job. So go for the striker. If you attempt to score five times and you score two, you're a star. If someone attempts to score five times and you're the goalie and they succeed in two, you're a loser. So just just all in perspective. And I think it's super interesting also to to, to just go back to your point on being a co-pilot, having conversations with our content team, who are some of whom are concerned about what they're seeing from all of this generative AI and recognizing that they're not going to lose their job to you know an API, but they might they might struggle to compete against someone who is using that as their co-pilot if they don't you know learn those new tools and techniques. And I think um, certainly that's the conversation with my daughter. She's a, an avid user of Dali 2 in her in her <laughs> design work and, uh, and and a few of the other uh, the, the 
other AGI yeah. tools. Yeah, no, yeah, we use Midjourney. So it's interesting, that notion, because on the one hand, it's like saying, hey, Excel got invented. Now I'm scared that I have to use Excel. Well, you know, we got over it. We got trained. That will happen over time. The bigger question I have is where is the push and the pull if you're a creative type where your work is being used to train the algorithm for that broader so you can get, you know, lookalikes and where does your proprietary and copyrighted work sort of begin and end and where does the innovation or the what's being generated by, by the co-pilot begin? I think that will make, that will come with some sort of best standards and or the regulatory environment. Another area, by the way, that should be interesting over time for investment. We've uh, we've almost run out of time here. This is a fantastic discussion. I'm really enjoying it. Let me ask you to put on your future gazing hat one more time. We're seeing a lot happen right now. You know, Bard being released by Google, as well as Microsoft's increased investment and, and entwinement with, with OpenAI. If we roll forwards a year, and we're now in February 2024, what is going to be hitting the news cycle concerning AI? And what what things should we be looking coming down the pipe? I mean, I think the, uh, the war of the incumbents will still be ongoing. There will be probably some continued breakthroughs and some early disillusions, man, because somehow we have this notion that whether it's chat GPT or other capabilities ought to be perfect or perfect-like, because there will be this push to now commercialize and build on top of these platforms. And that's where reality will settle and will set in that, hey, you've got to really productize whatever you're building and it's great, but it's not all the way there. So I think we will have some healthy doses of reality. But the train has left the station. It's just a question of is it going to go, you know, at 100 miles an hour, 50 or something else? Well, that's a great, a great note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated the conversation. And uh, as I said, we'll be cutting an intro and an outro to all of this. We're making sure you get that and you get a chance to review it before it goes live. But I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for talking so openly about it. Thank you, Andrew. My pleasure and great to meet you. Shout out to Redina for being on the show. Now you have a better understanding of strategically implementing AI within your business. Today, we talked about venture capital, artificial intelligence and machine learning, business strategy, data privacy and security, as well as digital transformation and tech industry trends. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson from today's episode was your favorite. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS. 